We're glad you're joining us here at Common Thread Online. This is a recording of our community gathering as we do each week to think together about the spiritual journey. At the end of the lesson, we open the floor for discussion, but we'd love to hear what you're thinking as well. On our website are directions to download our app. Once you have it, join the group. What are you thinking? We'd love to connect with you there. Uh, before we start the lesson, uh, if you're a newcomer, I would very much love for you to join me down the hall in room 205 because it's a chance for me to get to know you. I love getting to know newcomers. Uh, it's also a chance to uh, um, kind of talk about what you're getting into when you're getting into the community. Um, Jen, is there a place online that uh, people can go to get that portal or get those videos for the newcomer videos? Okay, if, if so great, because there's stuff that we're supposed to talk about, but I just know from experience sometimes we end up not talking about the stuff we're supposed to talk about, so I wanted to know how to send you to it so that you could still get access to that. <coughs> yeah. So, um, we started a lesson last week, bouncing and bouncing back. I said it would be an intermittent lesson. We would kind of uh, stop and start through the course of the year uh, because this coming year, all indications suggest, will be a year that breeds resentment. It will be a year that breeds indignation, uh, perhaps anger and some anxiety. Maybe further entrench uh, our already isolated and fragmented society with doing that with our family members, uh, doing that with our co-workers, maybe our neighbors. So last week I said, let's talk about, over the course of this year, some small things, bite-sized things that we can do to become, this year, the kind of people that this moment in history needs. People who stand in the gap and fill a need and initiate change. People not dominated by surging brain chemicals and reactionary responses. People not dominated by habituated emotional responses, psychological responses, relational responses. Not compelled, not compulsed. Small things that we can do, I said, that if we will do, will change who we are. Uh, small things that we can do, that if we will do, will help us be the people this moment needs. Well, if you missed last week, I talked about a continuum of growth outlined in Jesus' lesson on the mountain. Uh, love for self capacitates us for love for friend. And love for friend further capacitates us to expand in grace and forgiveness, which further capacitates us for the love of the other. So... A series of here now small doable things, practices that we can do to develop us along that continuum. Capacity for self-love, we talked about that uh, last week. Capacity to become better friends, to be better friends. Capacity to forgive so that we are able to respond in a more healthy way to the other. Last week, a bedrock practice essential for our capacity to love ourselves, meditation. But that not only helps us with the love for self, but it also uh, helps us for that whole continuum of practices, all of those things. So, applying the principle last week, uh, if you don't meditate, try it for five minutes. If you already meditate for five minutes, try it for ten. 
If you do meditation once a week, try it twice a week. If you do it alone, try it on Zoom with a friend to make sure you're steadier and more consistent. Or join the morning Zoom that goes on every weekday morning. If you don't know how to do it, Google mindfulness and read up and learn how to do it. Of all the practices that we will talk about this year, that one has the broadest spectrum capacity to help us in our journey of becoming. So the title of this lesson, Bouncing and Bouncing Back, the bouncing part is things that we can do to become more intentional, better friends. That's where we're going to start today. We have friends anyway. So what could we do with intention and with purpose that if we will do, will help us become better in the art of friendship and also in the process change the way our brains function, expand us. The bouncing back part in the title is things that we can do that will help us develop a capacity that maybe we can't yet access, the capacity for authentic, transformative forgiveness. Uh, that's where the lesson is going. Today, you probably won't be surprised, some context, some foundation laying, so that when we get to the practices that will unfold over the course of this year, we'll have broader understanding of what it is that we're doing. Excuse me. <coughs> no, this is the thing I have to do. So let's start today with this. Counterintuitively, perhaps, Friendship isn't that hard. Mutual support, the cornerstone of friendship, isn't that hard. It's actually hardwired into us. During times of great fractiousness, during times of great division, uh, great disunity, hyperpolarization, our time is not unique in history. There have been lots of times of hyperpolarization. In times like that, when a society experiences some kind of disaster, counterintuitively, fragmented, fractious, divided people quickly and deeply come together. There's been a whole bunch of research on this. It turns out that our divisions are actually luxuries. Hyperpartisanship is a luxury that we can entertain because we've got too much time on our hands. Uh, it takes extra bandwidth to nurture division. It takes extra bandwidth to nurture division. So strip away the luxury of that extra bandwidth and what we discover is an underlying default setting. It turns out mutual support, the bedrock of friendship, mutual support is a default setting. As a study uh, was well published when it came out in 1959, you can Google it, the guy's name was Charles Fritz, that challenged the notion that is common in a lot of our expectations that when everything falls apart in a society, the default setting in it in the human beings will revert to everyone for themselves. And it turns out that's not the default setting. This study interviewed 9,000 survivors of disaster and the overwhelming finding was that our natural state is cooperation. Our natural state is mutual support. When everything goes to hell in a handbasket, 
quickly, people quickly see the unimportance of class and status and religion and politics. And they quickly ignore the fractures that are driven by class and status and religion and politics. Reported again and again, when things fall apart, we see what we don't usually see, that our problems are your problems and your problems are our problems. We are more one than two. We are woven in a single garment. The news coverage after Katrina told us that human beings are brutal. The news told us all about murders and looting and rapes and gang dominance, but interviews one month later said that's not actually what happened. When 80% of the city flooded and 1,800 people died, after deeper analysis, the reports of all that brutality, most of them proved to be false. Military officials and law enforcement, medical and civilian officials, those who were there one month later when interviewed said, no, that's not what happened. Yes, bad things did happen. But overwhelmingly what happened was mutual support. This book would be a good companion for this series that's going to be spread over the year. If you can get a book done this year, this would be a good one. Uh, it informs us on practices that we can do to build stronger, more intentional friendships. In it, there's a section documenting this dynamic that I'm describing during Katrina, but not just during Katrina. It's a recurring problem. A disaster happens. And the most, the most common image that gets broadcast during times of disaster is looting. But one researcher, one researcher said, no matter how much looting happens, it always pales in significance to the widespread altruism and giving and sharing and supporting. We tell a very small sliver of the story, the looting part. We ignore the vast majority of the story the mutual support part. And a whole bunch more research that gets cited along the way. A weird thing happens during times of disaster. <coughs> People tend to report a deeper sense of well-being. What is that about? But it turns out when we need one another and when we are needed by one another, that is a sweet spot that's wired into our brains a sweet spot that's wired into our humanity. To sacrifice on behalf of someone else, to sacrifice on behalf of the well-being of another actually turns out to not be a sacrifice because it generates the same positive chemical responses in our brains that are generated when we eat after we are, when we are hungry or when we drink when we are thirsty. It's a primal motivating need within us, and we are wired for mutual support. Our brains pump out happy chemicals when we need one another and when we are needed by one another. It's a survival adaptation. We survived better back on the Serengeti when the group survived, so we have this sweet spot in our brains. So when terrible things happen, when crises happen, when disasters happen, when wars happen, and when they do what these studies tell us they do, push us into this context of mutual support, it turns out that our psychological health during those time, 
times actually gets better. Now, again, lots of documentation in the book. The troubles in Belfast, Sarajevo, what happens after earthquakes, after tsunamis. We actually become psychologically healthier and the craziest thing, happier during those times. Now, it's not the pain and it's not the loss. It's not the trauma. It's not the violence. It's not the devastation. It's being pushed into the environment for which human beings were designed the environments in which, in which we thrive. One journalist quoted uh, in the book 20 years after Sarajevo said, it's crazy, but I do miss something about the war. How fucked up is our world when somebody misses war, but, she said, many of us do. Disasters push us into the environment for which we're designed. We are designed to live in a context of altruism and mutual care and mutual support. So you might conclude, as I have concluded, that it is worth putting in some time and energy and focus and effort to develop that environment without the disaster part, <laughs> to be able to move into that environment with some intention worth it to develop the capacity to do friendship, to do mutual support more purposefully, more intentionally, better. Because you know, like I do, this mutual support dynamic, what happens during these moments of crisis is not how our society is organized to live most of daily life. Surely not in this divided historical moment. But nevertheless, it is a human default. So, this year, practices. Things we can do today that if we will do, will help us draw from that part that is wired into us. Now, the background I want to focus on today is counting the cost of any practice that we're going to undertake to become better friends. Before we talk about what the things are that we can do that will help us become better at friendship, let's talk about what it's going to cost us to take on any one of them, because it will. It will cost us. Friendships are messy. All right, look at this. <laughs> that is just too cute, huh? That's the title I sent out for today, Friends and Chocolate. They're both sweet and they're both messy. <laughs> so, given how our brains evolved, yeah, given how our brains evolved, it's not surprising that research tells us again and again that people are happier when they have strong and healthy friendships. You've probably heard this. It's the cornerstone of positive psychology, that branch of psychology that emerged about 30 years ago. Have close friends at work. We are 250% more likely to enjoy our work. By the way, I very much enjoy my work. <laughs> more surprisingly to me was that people who have three close work friends report 96% more life satisfaction, not work satisfaction, life satisfaction. Have three friends at work, you have 96% more uh, chance that you enjoy life. 
Now, I suspect that that's a correlative rather than a causal relationship. I suspect that the people who make friends at work probably do the things that create friendships, probably do the practices we'll be talking about. This one stood out to me. (coughs) Increasing your income does increase your happiness, but to make up for losing a robust network of of friends, you would have to have an increase of $97,000 a year above what you currently make in order to make up for the loss uh, in happiness that's afforded you by a network of friendships. And the death rates, (coughs) you have heard that no network of friends is like smoking a pack a day a network of friends, and you are 400% more likely to survive breast cancer. But again, this is familiar territory, and it makes sense given how we got the brains that we've got, how we survived and adapted. (coughs) But even so, as a society, we don't tend to live this way. It's not a Western society norm. It's not how day-to-day life usually goes, goes, especially not in this socially fractured moment, especially not living, as we often do, on a steady diet of outrage baiting. But even in the best of times, let's just say that we weren't being fed a constant diet of how bad the other is. If we say we weren't being fed a steady diet of fear about one another, In the best of times, friendship is costly. In the best of times, friendship is fragile. It is easier to not live in the environment that we're describing of mutual support. It is easier, not better, it is easier to not live in the environment of friendship. Because friendship is difficult and it takes intention. We have to decide that we're going to nurture over the long haul this relationship. We're going to have to work at ongoing, long-lasting mutual support. So, practices. Also, friendship does come with, of course, enjoyment and laughter and fun together. But the essential ingredient that makes a friendship last over time is mutual support over time. And that's messy. And that's costly. Also, as an institution, friendship is not very supported in our society. We don't have social structures that are designed to protect friendships. Not the way we do for other important relationships in our lives. When we marry, we surround ourselves with all kinds of legal support and counseling support and extended family support and religious support. At work, uh, our relationships are supported by the boss and by the team manager, by the HR department, because unhealthy relationships reduce productivity. But for friendship, there's none of that social institution support. We don't even have socially agreed upon conventions what friends should do. There is no guidebook that says friends should do this or do that, do it this often, show up at these places at these times. We don't have that. Don't talk to your partner for six weeks. That's a problem. Don't show up for work for six weeks. Also a problem. But don't talk to a friend for six weeks. Not that big a deal. Friendship doesn't have conventions or norms. 
Friendship doesn't have reinforcing structures. Friendship doesn't have schedules. Doesn't even have defined expectations. So not surprisingly, friendships are fragile. Friendships are often temporary. Again, lots of research. After seven years, only about, seven, uh, only about half of our friendships remain close after seven years. Because, like any relationships, friendships require upkeep, but with no norms defining what that upkeep is, with no formal obligations, we're all busy. Maybe in college we had time for the upkeep, but then partners, then jobs, then obligations, and kids, who has the time? So even though we know that friendships are important, and even though we know that a tremendous amount of our human satisfaction and well-being is predicated on healthy friendships, without clear expectations, it's pretty easy to let that upkeep slide. Which is why the bouncing part of this lesson. Intentional practices. Making a plan for a part of life that doesn't usually get much planning. Uh, implementing practical things for a part of life that doesn't usually get much practical attention. Like assessing obstacles to friendships or writing a plan down for friendships or writing out a schedule or intentionally adapting and revisiting when things change and how things change. All of which gets a whole lot easier if you've got some simple practices. Now here's something important. <clears throat> The very fact that friendships are so fragile, the very fact that friendships are so vulnerable is the reason why they have such an outsized impact in our lives. All that research, all those benefits, all that life fulfillment turns out when it comes to well-being, uh, friendship is at least as, but in many cases, more important than all of the other meaningful, significant, even familial relationships in our lives. And the reason is because they are so fragile. They are so vulnerable. They are never obligated. They are always deliberate. Friendship's fragility means that if you are in a friendship, you are deciding to be there. People don't stop being our bosses because we stop liking them. People don't stop being our spouses because we stop liking them. People don't stop being our families or our kids because we stop liking them. But friends usually do stop being our friends because we stop liking them. Now, <clears throat> let me make some parenthetical remarks that I think are going to help us see how friendship actually fits into a much larger context. And to do that, I'd like to revisit the interplay between biology and spirituality. So yes, I mentioned earlier, we have this evolutionary adaptation in our brains that makes mutual altruism part of our hardwiring. We do, when things are stripped away, default back to cooperation. We do default back to uh, mutual care and support. That part of us emerging out of our biology, out of evolution, we refer to it as stardust, made out of the elements of the earth. We've also talked about another part of being human, the inner light part of being human, the divine center part of being human, God dust, we refer to that, made of stardust, made of God dust. 
That altruism part, yes, it is a default setting. Yes, it is baked into our brains. Yes, it is an evolutionary adaptation thing. Yes, stardust. But it's also a more thing. And that's where spiritual perception becomes helpful for the more parts of life. Contrary to like a century and a half of fights, pitched battles between science and religion, spirituality and biology are not at odds with one another. (laughs) What spirituality has the capacity to do is fold in and integrate the bodies that we live in with a framework and understanding of that is larger. Um, add meaning to, that's a good way of thinking about spirituality. So we can imagine spirituality as an emergent property. As our biology evolved through uh, complexity and evolved enough complexity and evolved enough capacity, there emerged a capacity to perceive more than we had previously perceived, what was previously unperceivable. On Mondays, <coughs> I get to make breakfast for my grandboys. Nick drops them off on his way to work, and I make breakfast, and then I take him to school. And part of our routine is that I have a list in my phone. I refer to it before they get there every Monday, stories that I want to tell them, things that I want to expose them to. So after breakfast, we have about 20 minutes, and I said, okay, let's go learn something fun. And oh, we do, we go learn interesting things. I've got this curated list, and currently it's focusing on learning to appreciate nature. So last Monday, we explored the life cycle of sea turtles. And we watched a YouTube video, and then we talked about it along the, uh, the, in the morning and then on our way to school. And we were all pretty energized to learn that sea turtles have magnetic fluid in this cavity near their noses. And the magnetic particles in this fluid help them perceive where magnetic north is, I assume. So it's like they've got a compass in their noses that helps them find their way back to and lay their eggs at the beach on which they were born. So we had fun imagining that we had noses like that. And we imagined our capacity that to, to perceive in a way that we can't perceive direction. So we would close our eyes and we would turn our heads and we'd try to figure out where is north and we would point and we would. So it was great fun. We laughed. We, it was fun. Now we don't have magnetic noses, but we do have prefrontal cortexes. We do have the capacity to imagine. We do have a rich capacity for storytelling and meaning making. We have the capacity to perceive a moreness about our biology, a moreness about the reality that we live in. So yes, we are evolutionary brains, and we are more. We're storytellers about what we perceive. Storytellers about and imaginers of the reality behind what we perceive. And because we have that capacity, for centuries, we have followed the directionality of that imagination and that capacity for storytelling. And that has told us, look for other things. Look for deeper things. And it turns out, when you look for stuff, you tend to find it. And so we have looked for deeper experience because we have this capacity to perceive. And we have found deeper experience because we have this capacity to perceive what we would call that fuzzy ill-defined term spirituality 
All right, hold that in your mind, and let's take that framework, and let's apply it to this thing, this evolutionary altruism thing. Yes, it is wired into us. Yes, it is part of our natural selection brains, because we survive better if the tribe survives. So yes, let's help each other out. But also, there is a mourness component to this mutual support part of our humanity. That fuzzy, ill-defined spiritual perception thing, all that storytelling and imagining and experiencing stuff, that part tells us to look for more. And it turns out through history, when we have looked for more in our friendships, we find it. It's there. That part of us that's able to perceive a moreness about altruism realizes that if we don't bring a moreness perception to uh, this mutual altruism, if we don't bring that moreness percep perception to our innate desire to care for others, then it turns out that as a survival strategy, our friendships are actually reduced to become transactions. Run by our biology, we help one another so that one another will help us. Which then means we are tit for tatting our way through life. My doing for you obligates you to do for me, making us both more likely to survive. And the thing is, that's in us. It is. It's wired into our brains. Hardwired. It's there. But there's also more. And the more part of us, you can probably feel it in the way that I just described that, the more part of us is actually repelled by reducing our friendships to a transaction. We sense that there is something more than that. The part of us that can perceive more perceives that that's just not a big enough reality to live in. That's not a big enough reality to make our life in. It reduces something precious to something tawdry. And whatever that thing is, that mutual support thing, it's not friendship. We have an innate understanding that friendship has this magical element in it. The something more than increasing our odds of survival. Something more than mutual benefit. Matter of fact, it stops being friendship once we start saying, I will help you so that you help me. And sure enough, that's long been part of the spiritual tradition. It's been one of the cornerstones of the spiritual tradition. Spiritual tradition has always insisted that friendship is more and actually has painted it for us as a breeding ground, a training space for the deeper becoming of our more authentic selves. One of the things that emerges in the course of friendship is an expanded capacity for selflessness. The spiritual tradition insists that friendship expands us and awakens us to become this bigger self. Friendship is a pathway into what we often refer to as the inner light self. Yes, evolutionary instinct is a starting point, but if we are intentional, friendship, help, friendship helps us access the deepest parts of us, the more parts of us. And informed by an expectation 
of spiritual perception, spiritual people approach friendship as a process. Engaged in over time turns us into something. When we engage in friendship over time, using the practices we'll be talking about, it turns us into altruism. We don't do altruism, we become altruism. It turns us into something. We don't do selflessness. We actually, over time, become selflessness. We don't do sacrificing. That's not really sacrifice, we saw. We actually become the sacrificers who aren't really sacrificing. Friendship is a context. And when we live in that context... And when we observe what it takes to succeed in that context, it carries us somewhere. It helps us become more fully human. And when we become more fully human, one of the components of that becoming is we become more divine-like. So yes, friendship is fragile. And it is also the environment for becoming. Do the things that sustain friendships. Get intentional at becoming better friends. And in the doing, we become. We become more. I said a moment ago, this moment in history, our families and our coworkers and our neighbors, they need people to become more. And so my prayer this year, as we go through this lesson, is that we become those more people. So in Dwelling Divine, may we get better at, more intentional at friendship, and may we become this year more of what this world needs us to be. Amen. It does not take long to get out of practice. I'm ready, I was ready to say, what are you thinking? And I know we've got some other things we've got to do first. And I'm going to remember them without looking at Sue. We're going to talk to you people. That's what we're going to do. What are we going to say to them? <laughs> oh, that's right. Okay, so here's one of the, here's what we're going to do in the room, those of you online. By the way, we've been watching the numbers. I'm glad to see more of you joining us. We are very happy to have you here. Um, one of the, the things that I love to do is prepare lessons. And I work really hard at preparing lessons. I think I'm good at it. Uh, but I know probably better than most <laughs> that all the great lessons that I do don't do a tinker's dam to change people's lives. Here's what, there's a very good chance you all won't remember what we talked about by the time you get to lunch. <laughs> but here's what we have learned. If you take these ideas and then you get into a context of relationship with other people and you start talking about them, that actually begins to change lives. And so here's what we would like to invite you to do. We'd like you to invite you to one of the first steps, like what we do in the room. We open the floor and we start hearing what each other has to say. That's just a first step uh, because it's kind of a public setting, and you know, but it's, it's a good first step. It's an important first step. And you could do that same first step, actually even do it better than we can. Because on Zoom, there is the capacity for subgroups if we wanted them. We're not big enough to do that yet. So you can get in there and you'll get to know the people there. And if you keep coming back on a steady basis, 
uh, you'll get to know the folks who are there online, and at some point you will begin to think of yourself as friends. So I hope you will join the Zoom version of What Are You Thinking? Uh, the link is in the YouTube notes, and if you've gotten this far, we'll give you the password. Are you ready? It's 1417-1417. All right, let's dismiss the folks online. If you would, please put your hand on your heart, and let's remember as we go that we are every one of us carriers of the indwelling divine. Remember saying that earlier? That means that there is within us love and joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, all the capacity for altruism, all the things that we talk about, it is in there because divine breath is in us. And if you would extend your other hand to our city, let's look for opportunities this week to share that goodness that is in us with the people that we live and work and go to school with, looking for opportunities to repair and heal our worlds. Amen. God bless you all. You are dismissed. If these recordings help you move forward on your spiritual journey, we hope you'll take an ownership stake in the community and support the health and well-being of the community. Go to our website, commonthreadchurch.org. The donate button is right there on the top. Thank you.